Brandy, it seems like a long time ago that we had Debbie Madden on the pod to talk about her book, Hire Women. Have you done much hiring since then? You know, I've done a bit, Lily, and Debbie's advice was absolutely invaluable. And despite the book's title, it's about far more than hiring women. It's about how you set up your hiring practices to build a great team and culture. So did you or have you hired any women since then? Um, yeah, actually. I consulted on a process and we designed it to be fair and open. And we ended up hiring someone really great. She was perfect and brought even more to the role than we had thought we needed. So let's just get to our chat with Debbie so you can get on with hiring great people of your own. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, my name is Randy Silver, and this is The Product Experience, a podcast in which we try and get other people to tell us how to do our jobs better. So far, it's been working out pretty well for us. Yes, it has. I'm Lily Smith, and I've learned a lot from doing this. And today's show was especially useful because I'm building a team in my current role. We talked with Debbie Madden, the CEO and founder of Stride Consulting and the author of the new book, Hire Women. I love this book, too. Uh, And not only because it's short. And despite the title, it's not only about women. There's so much here that's applicable to everyone, whether you're a manager, uh, currently in a role, or looking for your next one. She's awesome. I'm already putting some of this into practice. So let's get to it now. Debbie, welcome to the product experience. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background. What's Stride Consulting do and how did it get started? Thanks so much for having me on. So my name is Debbie Madden, and I'm the founder and CEO of Stride Consulting. And I'll tell you a little bit briefly about who we are, and then I'll tell you how we got started, the uh, abbreviated version. We're an agile software development consultancy in New York City. We've been around for about five years. And the thing that we believe is our superpower is we embed seasoned technology teams largely made up of developers, product managers, and designers with mid-market and enterprise technology teams to really help serve both as augmentation to your existing organization, as well as high-level player coaches to really model the way in terms of tech and tech process to really help you be that best version of yourselves. And um, how we got started, I'm, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur by accident, if you will, and I've, <laughs> I've <laughs> which is a podcast for another day. But I've uh, I've started and grown five companies, and I just I just love everything about growing tech organizations, and and so Stride is the latest incarnation of that. And the reason that we got in touch with you to get you on today was you've uh, recently written a book that we are absolutely blown away by. Thank you. Yes. And, and, and in my, you know, in addition to my day job, I also, um, yes, wrote a, a, a book and it's, it's really, um, meant to be a start of a conversation, right? So it's literally a 40 minute read. It's called Hire Women. Um, and it's, we did, we did paperback. We did, I think we did, uh, Kindle and, and all that good stuff on Amazon. And it is, uh, a book that's very, uh, new and dear to my heart because it intersects inclusion and, and, uh, diversity in the workplace with an agile iterative approach. And, and so I was really excited to kind of put this book together. So how did you come to writing this book about hiring women? So, you know, the book, I'll, I'll say it's called Hire Women, and really the book is about so much more. It's about in inclusion and diversity in the workplace for, for all, right? So not only gender, but race, age, everything in between. And, you know, I am a female tech CEO and entrepreneur, and so my whole life I've been, you know, surrounded by 
by this subject matter. And, you know, lately it's been in vogue sort of thing. So, um, and that's, that's great. But, you know, I find that people take a, an idealistic approach to the whole subject matter. And the reason why I wrote the book is because I really, I, I think that's just the wrong way of thinking about this. I think inclusion and diversity while it is the right thing to do, it's also the very practical thing to do, right? And while it is an ongoing evergreen issue, it also is a very easy thing to improve, right? So I was kind of tired of having these endless conversations about woulda, shoulda, coulda. And I said, you know, what if we just take a continuous improvement, realistic approach and start moving the needle one team at a time, one day at a time, and, and giving ourselves a break and being realistic about the whole thing. And that that's the approach I took. So the book covers um, a really practical guide to stepping through how to improve your kind of hiring rate of, of women and, and build a more diverse workplace. But how did you how did you come to those conclusions? So I I wrote about things that I've experienced myself and my experiences are twofold. First, through the companies that I've I've scaled and owned and run over the years. And second, you know, I have the benefit of not only running an organization, but of running a consulting organization. So for a living, all that we do is we see inside, underneath the hood of some of the best technology organizations of the world, right? So we have a cross-section of data here. And um, very personally, Stride used what I wrote about in the book to actually increase the percentage of women in our organization by 267% in 10 months, right? And we didn't do this with an extraordinary budget. We are a self-funded company, right? So we, we did this by, you know, one, one week at a time. And it was such a powerful result that changed not only the number of women at Stride, but also the efficiency of our team that I really wanted to kind of just reflect on what had happened inside our organization and share that with people. I'm really curious to hear about how that started and how you started the journey, but let's go from the end first. What effect did that have and how did you know that it resulted in in improving the company? So, you know, that's an, that's an interesting question. And I'll tell you that there isn't like um, one moment where we passed the end zone and said, we're done, right? So by that logic, there isn't any slice of time where I can say, oh, this was before versus after. But I, but I can say that in 2017, um, we had a very specific goal of um, increasing the number of women at our organization. And that's the period where we increased the percentage by that amount, 267%. And when I look at 2018, every single measure of what good looks like in an organization we have excelled at. So our employee net promoter score is world-class. Our client net promoter score is world-class. We've won awards for being the best run company, the fastest growing company, the most profitable company, the company with the happiest employees, right? So um, that is a signal, right? Or multiple signals of what good looks like. And then when you compare Stride to the industry, we are actually, um, we have scaled faster and we, we operate at double profit margins than the industry average. We have half the turnover of industry average. So when I, when I look at, you know, from a bird's eye view, high level of, of our, you know, the accomplishments of our organization in 2018, immediately following this concerted effort, you know, I'm very happy. That's one measure, right? But the other measure is, when we're making decisions, you know, day after day, meeting after meeting, when no one's looking and it's just us at the table, um, conversations are richer. Debate is more layered. Um, and those are the activities that result in the outcomes, right? And so we have people, we have more women at the table. We have more people of color at the table. We have people of different ages at the table. Um, we truly do have a nice, diverse organization now. Um, and, 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 and I can personally see it day after day. Fantastic. Okay. So now we know the, the outcomes. How did you get started? 
I have to say that it actually had nothing to do with me. So one of the one of the the tenants at at Stride is that we believe in this idea of self-organizing teams and alignment to strategic priority, right? So there's a balance, right? It's not um you know the wild west. It's organized, prioritized goal setting. And so every year we kind of say, okay, this is what we want to achieve. This is how we want to grow this this year over the next three years. And then in 2017, out of the objectives, a small group of people said, you know what? We feel very passionate about diversity and inclusion. We're going to form a diversity and inclusion committee. And um, my job and my role was simply setting the guardrails, right? So the guardrails I set for that committee were, you know, they had an annual budget and they were free to behave as they wished. They were free to call upon me as a resource, right? So often they would say, we want to support this organization. We want to support this group. Can you come and give a talk? Can you come to the event, right? And so I was was a team member in that regard and happy to be so. And then, and then they went about their business. And then every single quarter, they checked in with me in terms of their results and their outcomes. And then we created these activities together. So it really was a very nice team effort that was um, really came from within. And so the the process that you talk about within the book, which um, which I think we should kind of discuss a little bit of within the podcast, is that the process that they went through, or has it kind of evolved since then as well? So, you know, everything everything that we do at Stride is, you know, continuously improving and the process in the book is is, you know, we this is this is a real process. This is a process that we've used over time, right? And it really very specifically actually doesn't start with hiring. It doesn't start with going outside your organization in order to build a true truly diverse team that is efficient. It really does start by looking inward, and that starts with creating equal pay for all employees and adopting a zero-tolerance policy on harassment, and then and only then focusing on an iterative process of identifying and removing bias within your hiring and retention practices to really achieve your goals. And the things that we described in the book, the tactics in the book are ones that we absolutely use and ones that we continue to use to this day. And it's interesting. So as a as a woman reading this book, when I saw the starting point being a, you know, equal pay and zero tolerance of harassment, I was like, yes, that's so obvious now that I've seen it. How did I not realize that before? You know, I think that the, I I talk about this topic a lot and I always start there and I, my very strong opinion on equal pay and zero tolerance on harassment is just do it. And um, I say this full well knowing that many organizations have a lot of red tape. You know, you, you can't take the Fortune 100, 500s of the world and say, just pay everyone equally. I understand that it is complicated. I understand that it might take a decade to really achieve. And I also understand that you might always be aiming towards a goal and never get there. And yet, and still I say, just do it. Because I think the attitude that we all have, this is part of going back to why I wrote this book. This is not woulda, shoulda, coulda. Like, let, let's let change the conversation. What are we going to do this month to move the needle on equal pay? What are we going to do this month to move the needle on zero harassment? And I have seen the biggest companies in the world with the biggest, most extensive process be able to impact change with a small group of people. It doesn't take a large budget. It doesn't even take a lot of people right? It takes passion and a few people willing to own accountability for making things happen. And so I really, I really do believe that these things are achievable. And while they're complex, I, I fully understand that. So talking about the zero tolerance then for harassment, one of the things I really liked about um, the book and, and a term that was new to me that, that I kind of came across was the microaggressions 
uh, term which to describe these kind of these small moments that just put you on edge slightly as a woman and um and I you know I really liked that term and the and the way that you talk about just have a list of those things that aren't acceptable within the business and and share that around the team but I can imagine in some cases that becoming slightly uh, difficult to manage or difficult to introduce. Absolutely. And I think one one very important point that I want to bring up here is because we're talking about harassment, doesn't make every sentence someone utters harassment, right? <laughs> and so yeah. there are... Um, conversations that we have with our coworkers all day, every day. And I, I'm, I'm sure I've said something today that was received differently than I intended. I'm sure of it. I can't put a finger on it, but I'm sure that in conversation daily, the way things are said and received is, is mismatched all the time. That's part of human communication. And moving the needle on zero tolerance on harassment and and really listening to your peers, your coworkers, your your employees, and taking these things seriously does not then mean then we have to walk around eggshells. And so it's a balance, right? And so the microaggressions part comes with, you know, it, it is perfectly fine and perfectly within the realm of the scope of what we're talking about here to have a one-on-one conversation with a coworker and say, listen, you said something to me, you know, last week and I want, do I have your permission? Is it okay if I take a minute and give you some feedback on how that was received and can we talk about uh, maybe communicating differently moving forward, right? That's, that's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother topic, <laughs> giving, yeah. giving feedback. And, you know, people make the mistake of, oh my gosh, now that I'm, you know, have this, this, you know, harassment on my radar, everything everyone says is automatically offensive. And, you know, it, w- w- we won't ever get anything done if we act that way. Right. So it really is about, um, educating ourselves as to what is acceptable and not acceptable, and then the different levels of severity, right? And, you know, literally in in New York State, um, you know, it is actually now required for all supervisors and above to have harassment training every single year. And uh, my entire company uh, went through that in, I think, a few months ago. We went through it a a couple months. I can't remember exactly when. And even though 80% of what I learned at the training I had heard before, there were a couple of things where where I was thankful that I was, you know, getting a refresher and getting a moment to really think about it. Because... Like, for example, um, what if a coworker of yours, um, 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning, says something on Twitter that upsets you, right? What mm. is that? Is that just someone tweeting or is that harassment, right? Like, so this whole world of ever-connectedness and social media is putting an, an extra layer of complexity on things. And as a supervisor, it's on me to really be aware of those things, right? And so if something comes up in my organization, I'm equipped to deal with it. So. It's, it's a grayscale here. One of the things I really liked about the book is aside from the philosophy, you give a lot of very practical, hard advice. And uh, the, one of the things you talk about was a skill matrix, a, a career ladder, and then a role matrix and salary bands. Can you talk us a little bit through that, what that, what that looks like, what that actually means? Yep, absolutely. So the second piece of the inclusion puzzle is equal pay. And that doesn't mean you should pay your CTO and your intern the same salary. What it means is, as you mentioned, Randy, is creating a skills matrix and a career ladder. So what this does is it lets every single person in your organization have very clear expectations around what is expected in their role and what they need to do to advance to get promoted. So Let's say if we have a software engineering team and very basically we have junior, mid, and senior level, that's your career ladder, right? Mm -hmm. And the skill matrix might be, well, um, 
a junior level employee might need to know test-driven development where a senior level developer might need to know continuous deployment. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of simplifying this mm-hmm. to its core. But, um, and then what, what you layer on top of that is salary bands. Um, at Stride, we have sal- every level on our career ladder has a, a, roughly a 15000 or a $20,000 salary band. And so if I'm a junior developer at Stride, I know that in order to advance, um, I know how much money I have uh, within a $20,000 band to achieve. And then I also know what's expected of me in order to achieve that. The the band gives room for your A players to really excel, right? So I'm not saying no matter what you do in a year, you're going to get a $5,000 raise because that's the quickest way to lose your A players, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is if you do what's expected of you, you will make within this band And then I'm also saying, which I think is a key thing that a lot of people fall short on, is you have the right as an employee to request a promotion the day that you believe you achieved the goals of the, you know, of the requirement for promoted. So if I'm a junior level employee and in six months I'm at mid-level, I have the right to ask to get promoted to mid-level and earn that extra salary and earn that extra title. And then that really motivates people to grow at a pace that they're comfortable growing in order to achieve their own career goals and kind of puts the employees in the driver's seat. So you've got a, I've been in big companies where that's a real point of contention is, do you get promoted when you're ready or do you get promoted only when a role opens that is at that level? How do you deal with that from a perspective of management and planning? That's a really great question. And and there is no... Uh, black and white, right? I'm, I'm going to fall back on on agile on this one, like everything, <laughs> right? It's like it really is. Like it, I think a lot of people use excuses to do nothing, right? So someone might say, "Oh, well, that's great, Debbie, but my company is, you know, biggest company in the world, and we have open roles, therefore I can't do this." And I think that's what I'm trying to change the conversation on. Like, let's get rid of the, therefore I can't do this. And let's say, okay, what can I do within, within the boundaries with which I'm given to work? And it's a very real fact that a lot of companies say, all right, well, we only have two senior slots open on this team. We only have this many and either you have to wait for a seat to be vacant or you have to move to another team. I think I would push hard against that and really start to talk to the people that can influence that inside the organizations and come up with some annual goals to kind of change the the promotion system inside the organization, right? And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be easy, but there are things that you can do. You could, as a company, take the hit on profit margins and pay people what they deserve based on their achievements. And then, you know, we reorganize teams as, I don't know, once a year or something like that, right? Or you could have very honest conversations with people that say, um, this is where you're at. We don't have room for you here. Let's start thinking six months ahead. Where else in the org has a spot for you, right? Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of um, achievable small things or, or big things, right? And the bigger the thing, the more complex it might be. But, um, you know, one of the practices I advocate for in the book is creating a mind map, right, which is simply drawing out all of the things that we think we want to achieve and then tying that to complexity and and impact, right? So we might look at this and say, all right, uh, in an ideal world, everyone gets promoted as soon as they deserve it. And in order to do that, We can do these three things and thing number one has high impact and it's very easy. And thing number two has high impact and it's very hard. Well, let's do the first thing, right? And that might give 30% of the people what they want and not a hundred percent of the, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's really is about looking at the world of what's possible inside your organization and every single quarter, you know, when you're doing quarterly or annual planning, whether you have OKRs, um, whether you have um, annual initiatives and rocks, whatever your prioritization system is, you know, simply pick a priority that is going to take you one step closer to equal pay. 
I understand kind of the the zero tolerance for harassment and I have my own kind of view on how the equal pay structure and the practice that you need to go through of putting these bands in place and um, making it really clear how you move from one band to another would work for for women and how that has an impact but what's your kind of take on why this makes a difference to women being more comfortable or, or being more open to joining an organization so I really I really like this question and I appreciate you asking it I think there are as much as I like to broaden the conversation to different types of diversity when you look at data um, there is a very real difference in the way that women and men advocate and negotiate, especially when it comes to salary, right? And so one of the things that I like about creating the structure inside the compensation part of the organization is that it kind of levels the playing field. And I think when it comes to creating a workspace where there are more women and where more women are in leadership roles, if you look at any woman individualized, that individual woman may or may not be really great at advocating for herself. But if you look at women as a whole, in general, we are um, less effective at negotiating salary for ourselves than men are. And so this this is one thing that an organization can do to to help that out. So I have um, a few women that I work with on a consultancy basis. So they do various different jobs and I find it very satisfying to kind of pitch them into other businesses because occasionally they won't, you know, they won't kind of pitch themselves with their full potential. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much easier for me to sell them into a business than it is for them to sell themselves. So, um, yeah. So once you've... Um, once you've kind of got your equal pay and your zero tolerance for harassment plan sorted, what's next? What comes after that? So then we start to move into hiring and retention. And teams, individuals falsely rush to hiring as the first step when thinking about diversity and inclusion. And I really do believe that kind of shoring up the foundation inside the org will go such a long way. And then once that is not done, but paid attention to, and uh, there is a plan in place to start, you know, uh, furthering uh, the goals towards those two objectives of equal pay and harassment, zero tolerance on harassment, then when when we talk about retention and hiring, often the most effective thing to do is to have um, a continuous loop where you identify bias and then remove bias. Because today, most companies are kind of actively hiring all the time, right? And so for a startup that might not have any hiring engine in place, then we could just kind of take this formula and just kind of start it fresh, which is nice. And for all of you um, hoping that you'll avoid having bias, bias if you're a startup. I uh, likely bias will creep in, even given best intentions. So um, let's assume that all of us will have bias in our in our retention and hiring practices at some point or another. Then what we want to do is we really want to take a look at um, where we think the biggest biases are, whether they're usually they're unconscious bias, there might be others. But again, it goes back to that mind map of finding that lowest hanging fruit in terms of the things that you think are the weakest in biggest need of disrepair, in biggest state of disrepair, and then how easy it is to fix them. So one of the easiest simple, there's two, like when it comes to job descriptions and the image you portray to the world, this is like the easiest stuff ever. You take your job description, you plug it into Textio, it's txt.io, and Textio in 30 seconds will tell you how to make your job description more gender neutral. And that's it. Simple as that. And in 30 seconds, you can have wording in your job description that will impact the, the people that actually apply to your job. And I can tell you that from personal experience, this is actually real. And I was a huge skeptic of this um, years ago. And I actually did an experiment where I put a job post for an HR role. 
and then put the job through a gender neutral wording tool, changed about 10 words in the job post and actually went from 75% men applicants to 75% women applicants with the same title, like literally overnight. So um, that's easy, simple. And then the second easy, easy thing is like simply just take a look at your website and all of your social media you know, just the big ones, like look at your, if you have a Facebook page or an Instagram page, a LinkedIn page, perhaps if you're advertising on um, the Muse or something like that, just look at the images. And if it's all one type of person, just <laughs> put up a different picture, right? Like literally, like just do that. Um, and if you only have one type of person at your organization, um, uh Put, be as honest as you can and get someone else in there. Put an advisor in there, like, you know, bring um, a board member, like anyone that you can, because um, that's the biggest signal. That's all people know about your company. And from that one picture, they're taking a look at who you are. And so really represent your organization as best as you can uh, through the images and the words that you use to describe your company. I mean, that could be done in a matter of weeks, even at the biggest companies. My last couple jobs, we used uh, Textio or something very similar, and it was amazing. We just didn't realize that the default job specs that we had were sending out a signal that we didn't intend. It was right, uh, and I, and I, I got to tell you, like I, as a woman in tech, was writing masculine job descriptions for fifteen years, like. I'll admit it. Like, I, I feel like I'm like, you know, you know, my name is Debbie and I confess, right? Like, I, I couldn't believe it. Like when I, when I realized this about myself, I was um, shocked and I'm so glad I know this now. And um, I had no idea. I just, I just had no idea. I love the example in the book that you use uh, around orchestras and they were doing everything through, uh, they tried to go gender neutral, but they, they didn't quite get it right the first time. Yeah, I, I love the orchestra example because I think this idea, we're talking about this idea of of removing bias in your interview process by having one part of it be blind, meaning you truly are blind to the person's identity. And the orchestra example is they had tryouts and uh, very, very few women were making it through and then they decide to have people try out behind behind a closed curtain, yet and still very few women, I mean, something like 5%, I mean, very few women were making it through to the orchestra. And then they had um, candidates remove their shoes. And the day that they did that, they started increasing the percentage of women that made it into the orchestra and it was simply hearing the click of a woman's heels gave you that that little bit of information that you needed to assume that it was a woman and without realizing it impacted your perception of their quality of play and you know this is this is with the best intention and, and we all do it without realizing it so it's not about placing blame right it's about tricking our brains almost, right? Like what can we do knowing that our brains are going to fail us even when we're good people to give us the best chance at, at building a diverse organization? Or they could have just given everybody tap dancing shoes. That that would work too. Any, <laughs> any type of universal shoe would, would work. <laughs> so when you're in the interview process, uh, I know I get this question a lot, and it's something I refuse to ask, but when should you or should you ever disclose your previous salary? That's an interesting question, and I have opinions on that, as you can imagine, and I'll tell you what my opinions are. <laughs> so I know that New York State recently prohibited employers from asking outright, what do you currently make or what did you currently make? And I, I like that. I like that New York State did that. And you know, when you're looking for a job, I'm, I'm just going to like make it personal. Like, let's say, you know, one day I need to look for a job. Well, there's certain things I know about myself, right? I have two children. And so work-life balance is critically important to me in any job I get. Um, I'm not willing to travel 75% of the time for more money. I know that. I know that about myself. 
I also have a very, very high moral compass. So I am not willing to work with a team that I can't feel I can be vulnerable with and trust. And so that's part of my non-negotiable offer, um, as well as the money that I'm looking to make. And so for me, I want people to know this is this is what I think I'm worth, and this is what my current employer thinks I'm worth. And I think that's valuable because I think I'm currently getting paid what I'm worth. <laughs> Um, you know what I'm saying? Now, now I'm just using that as an example because, of course, I'm the CEO, so I, you know, I don't have a boss, so it's unfair. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I'm, I'm just using my myself in this example. Um, and I believe when people are looking for a job, it's you know, it's within your right to disclose what you want to disclose about your own self. Now, one thing that you do owe to the your future potential employer is to disclose any accommodation you might need, right? And so that's different, but that will impact compensation, right? Sometimes people need a religious accommodation. I have to leave work, you know, if I'm an Orthodox Jewish individual and I have to leave work um, before sunset on Friday, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 a very real thing. That's that's a non-negotiable for me. I can't be judged on it. My my employer is not allowed to judge me on this, but it's an accommodation. Um, if I have a back pain and I need to stand every hour, or I can't sit still for that long. I need to you know I need to tell my employer the things that are really important to me, and that's different for every person. And compensation is important, right? And so um, if it's important to you and you feel you're being paid fairly and you want to disclose that, there's no law against talking about it, right, from the from the interviewee side. I think it's really interesting that the accommodation point, and I have three boys and uh, one of them has autism. And so I've been learning like a whole ton about autism <laughs> in the last few years since he had his diagnosis. And, um, you know, and I it's made me very aware of the other people around me that I work with and uh, the fact that you don't kind of really fully appreciate how other people are thinking or feeling at any one time um, and what they might be struggling with. So there's, there's that kind of uh, accommodation for, for different sort of, well, neurodiversity um, is the term that they use. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this goes back to the advocating thing, right? As a, as a woman, as a man, as any gender, um, it's on us to advocate for ourselves. And if there are things that we think are important to us, um, we owe it to ourselves to discuss those things. And people say, well, what if I don't get the job once I disclose a thing? And then my response is, well, you should go ahead and thank that person because you don't want to work with that person. And they've just saved you a lot of time. right? So if you're going to be honest and share the things that are really important to you with a potential employer and they reject that, then that's that's you're not going to be happy there and you're not a fit. Right. And the sooner you know that, the better. And that's a scary um, leap of faith to take. And I understand that. And I haven't yet met a, an individual. I've been working 25 years. I haven't yet met an individual who hasn't taken that very piece of advice and then thanked me later. Right. Because as scary as it is, if you're honest with someone about the things that are really important to you, they will either respect that and then you'll start the the your new job on the good footing or they'll reject that. And then you'll be, you know, saved a lot of years of misery. <laughs> So one of the ways that you establish a good relationship uh, is you have a handshake deal that you do with people as you uh, bring them on board. Tell us a little bit about that. So my handshake deal, which I started doing about four years ago, is whenever I offer someone a job, I sit down with them, go through the the benefits, the compensation, the job requirements. And then at the end, I say, listen, you can like everything that's on this piece of paper, but here's what I need you to verbally commit to if you take this job. And that is that you own advocating for you, right? If something is not working for you, you are the only one that has the full context of what is going on for you. And I don't have a crystal ball. None of your coworkers have a crystal ball you're the only one that really has a full spectrum of knowledge of your life. And the other side of that deal is, and I, and I, and I literally will actually say this, I say, you have to be a professional. 
and you have to be part of the solution team as well. This isn't Tinkerbell land. I can't just spray fairy dust and make the problems go away overnight, right? We have, you have to give us a professional courtesy of working through how to make this better for you, right? And it might take a day, a week, a month, a year, um, and we have to solve this together. Um, Exception to the rule, if you are unsafe in some way, Mm. then, you know, that's a today sort of thing, right? But if it's, um, I want to work in React and I'm working in Java, you know, I'm going to need three months, right? So, um, (laughs) and then, you know, if, if we address the problem and it's still not working for you, then, then you should move on, and I'll be I'll be your biggest supporter, right? I will provide you references. I will move mountains to get you a new job, but um, I absolutely do not want you to stay at Stride if you would rather not be here because that's the quickest way to suck a whole culture, right? Um, and so that's that's a handshake deal. And I say to people, I say, listen, I want you to think about this, and when you wake up tomorrow. If you're jumping up and down, really excited about this handshake deal, like I would really love to work with you. And if you're not, then I don't want to work with you. And um, and that that helps get the right people into the company. More importantly, it helps have the conversation a year later when the employee might have forgotten that I said that to them. And then I might notice something and I might say, remember last year when I said, you know, you got to advocate for you. What's going on for you right now? Right. And then it's like that permission and the floodgates open and then we have a conversation. It's just it's so powerful. Um, Yeah. You just give someone the permission to um, advocate for themselves. And I think it's really important to be given that permission because in many other businesses, you wouldn't have it. Right. You wouldn't have, you know, it it might be kind of frowned upon or, um, you know, dismissed. Whereas, you know, to be able to set those ground rules right from the beginning. Yeah. Like you say, it kind of gives you that permission. Right. Absolutely. So how in your experience then throughout your career, how much have you been on the kind of the receiving end of bias or negative experiences, I guess, of of being a woman in working in technology? Um, You know, I've experienced it. So I've I've kind of bucketed it into two extremes. And I think, I don't know, maybe that's just the way my mind works. But so I bucket it into 97% of people in the world are good people. And 3% are bad people, roughly, right? And so when I, you know, it's like the, your spidey sense, right? If I come in contact with that 3%, and they show their true colors and it's blatant bias or harassment, I will just kind of call it as quickly as possible and separate myself from that person as quickly as possible. Um, uh, Literally by quitting a job if I have to, or by um, firing an employee if I have to, right? Just literally physically separating permanently from that person, or firing a vendor, right? Or whatever, whatever the hard thing has to be, if it's, if it's, it's blatant and it's unavoidable and eternal, then I will, I will, I will part ways as quickly as possible. Um, and then the rest of the time, my tactic is, I call it making allies outside of the boardroom, right? So by this, I mean, um, there is a very real actual gender bias that happens where women, if we're aggressive in business, we're seen as bitches versus as successful. And mm-hmm. um, and so most people do it. Men and women do it. We all do it. Um, I, 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 every time I say men and women, I feel like I'm neglecting um, a third and multiple other genders. So I apologize. Um, all all hum- I try to say humans and I'm not yet practiced at it, but we all humans disadvantage women for being aggressive in business. And so when I encounter those 97% of people, my strategy has worked very effective my entire career, which is I get buy-in for my ideas um, one person at a time. So it takes longer 
Um, and sometimes I actually even will try to lead someone down a path so that um, they come to the idea and they kind of even own and champion the idea on their own. And then I, I wind up supporting them. And um, I think it's, it's, it's served me very well versus trying to enter a room of 20 people and kind of brute force my way into buy-in in a group. I think women have a harder time of that than men. Yeah, I agree. I recently had uh, an interesting situation where I was organizing an event and um, I thought I'd been, you know, very kind of giving giving everyone roles within the team and, and giving them lots of autonomy to fulfill all the objectives that they had for, for the event. And then we went for dinner at the end of, of the event and um, they were like, yeah, we just do what Lily says because she's scary. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I thought I was being really nice. And I was talking to my sister about it. I was like, am I really scary? And she said, no, no, it's fine. Because actually, you know, if I can't remember, she put it something like, um, if you'd been aggressive, uh, then they would have hated you. But instead you were assertive. So they just were a bit scared of you. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, it was very funny. It was very insightful. It made me feel much more comfortable about the situation. Um, so we're kind of running out of time. Um, I feel like we could talk loads more on this subject. <laughs> um, is is there anything else that you would kind of, aside from reading the book, Hire Women and other people of um, other kind of uh, diverse backgrounds, is there anything else that you would kind of really recommend people do to try and provide a more diverse workplace? The single biggest thing that I'd recommend that we haven't talked about yet is if you're listening to this, get yourself as many mentors as you can. And these mentors should not be coworkers. They should be people that don't work in your organization and as many mentors as you can get that are not like you, the better. So if you are of a certain age or, or gender or race, then find people that are not like you. And a mentor relationship um, does not have to take a lot of time and does not have to be mentally taxing. And the more all of us can spend time helping and getting help from different types of people in our lives the more we all gain a better understanding and empathy for different types of individuals. And I think that's the, the way that we, we make this entire initiative easier and more impactful. So that, that would be kind of my big um, request to everyone who hears this. I'm going to go ahead and recommend that everyone be a mentor themselves. And that can also be a reverse mentor in some cases to somebody more senior than you. But and that's a great way of making connections. One of the hardest things I've found and I've seen for other people is getting entering into the mentorship relationship with someone else to find a mentor. Do you have any advice on on recruiting someone to help you out? People are people are very hesitant to ask for help and I'm not I'm not sure why and I think people feel that they are um um you know, imposing on someone's time. And I think, Randy, what you said is so key is that um, I'm going to extrapolate what you said is that every relationship really is a two-way street. So by asking someone to be your mentor, you're, you're really also asking if they need any advice from you or if there's anything you could do to help them out. And so um, we all come in contact with people whether you go to a meeting with someone and you say, oh, I really like the way that person thinks about this thing, or whether you are out um, with your friends on the weekend and you meet someone new and you really appreciate their perspective on things. I think mentors can come in any any shape or form, and they don't have to be the CEO of a company. They don't have to be someone that's been working for 30 years. Um, a lot of people in my life that are my mentors are um, people of all all ages, walks of life, experiences, everything, right? And some of my mentors, I only simply use once a year, right? And I call them up and I say, I have a question, I need 15 minutes of your time and they give it to me. And then, and then I give them 15 minutes of my time. 
right? Just use every interaction you have as an opportunity to, to connect with someone um, following the conversation. You go to a tech conference. Oh my God, there's hundreds of people there. Um, you don't have to, you know, have, say, hey, can, can, can we do one call? And if it's not working for you, then okay, that's it. Okay, thank you for your time. And that's it. It doesn't have to be, you know, a lifetime commitment here either, right? Um, just fi- finding ways to connect with people so they can give you perspective. I think that's really important. The place that I came up with a uh, reverse mentorship or where I saw it in action was a very large company where the senior management aggressively went out to recruit people to help them out. And they got some of the most junior frontline staff. And the things that they learned from those people were things like, how do they use social media? What are their attitudes? What are, Things that they, you know, 50 and 60 year old people had no clue about, but the people in their early 20s did natively. And it doesn't have to be something that's purely professional that you're learning. It's how to uh, better market yourself, how people, other, how your customers are, are acting. Absolutely. Amazing. I think we should probably wrap up there before we take the whole of the rest of your day. Oh, God, there's so much more we could talk about, Debbie. Thank you so much. I know, I know. Yeah, this has been absolutely wonderful. I've really enjoyed speaking with you both. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was great. But after hearing both of you talk, Randy, it leaves me with a really important question. Are you sure you're from New York? Oh, ow. Yes. But I've been in the UK entirely too long. I say lovely and brilliant and cheers. And I'm now realizing that my accent has changed too. Damn it. Uh, But yeah, I love talking to Debbie. I've done something like the handshake deal before, but never so explicitly. I'm definitely using that in the future. And the advice on sharing previous salary numbers is spot on. And next week, we get more great advice from New York. Donna Lichau joins us to talk about storytelling and her journey from being a doer to a consultant and now to a coach and what to look for in a coach. So tune in then and don't forget to subscribe so you get this kind of great advice every week. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at mtppod. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. And here's global product tank manager, Mark Abraham, to tell us more about what product tank is. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com slash training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time.